you would please uh, take your Bible and open them to Galatians 4. One memorable Christmas for me was as a child. I was seven or eight years old. Dad was stationed in Turkey. That's a country, in case you guys aren't familiar with, you know, your geography. Um, I had relatives in the army, serving in the army, and they were stationed in Germany. And so we decided, being that close, that we were going to spend Christmas there. We took a plane to Frankfurt. We took a train to Augsburg. And then spent a week in Germany over Christmas. Now, I was really confused and frankly depressed. I was a very young guy. I don't know, all of about seven, eight, nine years old in that range. And uh, I, I wasn't sure how Christmas could work when our home and Christmas tree and everything was in Turkey. Right? I mean, did Santa know, right? Those are the thoughts of a kid. I mean, I was certain that Christmas would not be on time. Not till we got back, I thought. And I didn't even know what, when that was going to happen, right? How long are we going to be in Germany? What is this thing? Well, I've got good news for you. Christmas came on time. <laughs> How do I know, actually, overall? Because Christmas was on God's divine timetable. So when we talk about Christmas, we're talking about the Christmas. What do we mean by Christmas in the Lord's church? We mean this. Jesus coming to this earth to be Savior. Now, as I was thinking about Christmas this, uh, this year... I was drawn to Galatians 4 to be able to teach you that way. So make sure you're in Galatians 4. This is actually a second part to the study that we started last Sunday. So let's look at the text that we are going to study. And let me read it out loud. And uh, you read quietly there or just listen. But when the fullness of time, of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. We're talking about here the timing of when Jesus came. Verse 4 says, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son. Now, there is something incredibly deep about this. I believe understanding the timing of it actually helps us understand the purpose of it. The when for Jesus helps us understand the why for Jesus. That is why he came. Galatians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul. He became a Christian. You remember when he was on his way to kill Christians in Damascus. True story. 
The Lord stopped him dead in his tracks and threw him down and made him blind and then said, why are you persecuting me? Paul said, who are you, Lord? And in saying that, he answered his own question, right? I mean, yeah, the Lord is speaking to me. Jesus somehow is speaking to me. Jesus had already been raised and was in heaven, and now he is speaking to Paul. I want to use you, Paul, to take the gospel to the whole world. See, Now, and the first people that Paul went out to preach the gospel to were the Galatians. Now, Galatia is in uh, modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor. And in this whole area, the gospel went out, And interestingly enough, Paul's first letter in the New Testament was this very one where he wrote to the Galatians. And I think there's something critical that that should tell us. Because his theme was the gospel. First, the very first thing. I'm going to write a letter to these guys. First thing I want to talk to them about is the gospel. This letter is all about, and at this time, there were people that were, that were messing it up. So this letter was all about fixing the abuse of the gospel. It's, it's the first thing that gets attacked in a true church, the gospel. Distorting it, blurring it, changing it, making it say less, sometimes making it say more. We got, we got to get it right. Now, the gospel is all about Jesus Christ coming to earth to do a particular work. Christmas focuses on his coming. And what I want you to see from Paul's letter to Galatians right here is there is a tie to Jesus' coming, the timing of it, and the very meaning of the gospel. Four crucial time factors on the importance of Jesus' coming. And I'm telling you, beloved, these are all going to change how you see Christmas. Now, the first one here is review. So let's kind of remind ourselves of this first point. Number one, Jesus' coming was arranged. It was arranged. It says, when the, but when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth the Son. Fullness tells us there were factors to the timing. In other words, he was waiting for something to get filled up, just like an hourglass has sands of time in it, and it's just kind of slowly working its way through. And when it gets to the very bottom, the thing, you know, if you get it in a little swivel, it just turns like that, right? And that's the deal. So when, it, when it's filled up, then we will know that things are ready to turn. Things are ready to start happening. Well, what was filling it up? And that tells us that things needed to happen. It tells us that when he, when he says fullness, it tells us that this was a plan. This had arrangement to it. Not just any time, but an exact, precise time. In the Greek it says, the fullness of the time came. The coming of Jesus was arranged. When was it arranged? How was it arranged? Jesus came at just the right time. And you remember that we worked through three ways that you know, that we know that it was just the right time. It was the right time because of, first of all, proclamation. You say, what proclamation? We went through this and we pointed you to Titus chapter 1 and we showed you that it was the 
before times eternal. There was a proclamation that was made before times eternal. You say, when is that? That's before everything was created, everything was made. And there was a coming together of the Trinity. Well, they're, they're always together, but they made this proclamation. They made this decree. The triune God made this decree in eternity. How do we know that? Because Titus 1 and Romans 1 verses 1 and 2 tell us that. And the decree set the time. And this was God making a promise to God that this would happen. I want you to understand how special Christmas is. God made a promise to God that Christmas would happen before times eternal. Before you go out there thinking, oh, this is some kind of man-made deal, you know, where, you know, Santa and all that stuff. But listen, there was a before. Secondly, it was not only the right time because of, because of proclamation, but because of prophecy. So many prophets, and you know, you've heard these, that, that told us just when Jesus would come. Isaiah told us when, Micah told us when, Malachi, even all the way back to Genesis 49. We showed you that last time. And then third, it was the right time because of providence. Providence is, you remember we talked about this, the normal activities that you live out intersecting God's will. And you know that. In fact, actually, even insurance companies know that, right? What do they call catastrophes? Acts of God, right? Well, at least they used to. I don't know if they're allowed to do that now, but they should, right? And so we understand providence being our normal activities that we live out intersecting God's sovereign will. And this is important to know, that his will always is the final say, right? You can see this sovereign intersecting when Jesus came. It was the right time religiously, for example. During Israel's captivity, you remember Israel, um, they began to meet, to come together in synagogues where they would teach the law, teach the word. And you know, that allowed for them to hear many passages about the coming of the Messiah. It was the right time culturally. There was a common language called Koine Greek that that came to be, and that allowed for the gospel to be spread everywhere. And so it was just the right time for that. It was the right time politically. And, you know, the Roman roads were made at this time in such a way where you could travel and get from place to place to place faster and this was important, especially to Jews that were living outside of Israel. They were called proselytes or people that just lived outside. They could come for the festivals because of this, to hear and see this Messiah. And also Luke chapter 2, as we saw earlier, pre- uh, presented here. By the way, Caesar Augustus was pl- uh, played by a real Augustus. Just saying. But Luke chapter 2, Caesar Augustus gives the census that got Mary and Joseph down to Bethlehem at just the right time for Jesus to be born, just where Scripture said he would be born. Listen, 
Caesar had no idea about, about, uh, scripture. He didn't care. He didn't know that he was working perfectly in line with what God wanted. He had no idea. For him, this is all about power and money. But God said, that's fine. You do what you do, but I'm always going to do what I do. And so it was arranged, sovereignly arranged, the coming of Jesus on this divine timetable. Secondly, point number two, Jesus' coming was also accepted. And this is where we left off. Galatians 4.4, 4, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, which speaks of the humanity of Jesus. In Romans 8.3, it says, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, he looked like just like us. You say, so why is this point called Jesus' coming was accepted? Because in the first point we said there was a promise that was made. Somebody had to be to accept this to take the role of being that Redeemer. Who? The second member of the Trinity. Titus one the Titus one two promise was made to the second member of the Trinity who accepted the role of being placed in a woman by the Holy Spirit. That's what Luke 1 says. Now, in order to accomplish the virgin birth of Isaiah 7 and 14, you had to have a real woman. You had to have uh, a, a woman that would be chosen. And so the Lord chose Mary. He didn't choose her because she was the most amazing woman that ever existed. Although people like to, you always make more out of something that you shouldn't make and less out of the things we should make more of, right? That always is the way. No, he, he chose her so that he could shine his grace through her. It's all about God. She was a sinner just as much as you and I were or are. But it, the thing to really understand here in Jesus accepting this is what happened in him being placed in Mary is this thing that the Bible calls the hypostatic union, which is a fancy word for saying Jesus being 100% God and 100% man, which never works for our math, but always does for God's undiminished deity, took on perfect humanity. Now, there are so many truths in this one statement. We would be here for a while, but let me just point out a few. First of all, it shows us that Jesus was submissive. There was a humble submissiveness in this. I mean, how many times did Jesus say, not my will, but the will of of my Father? Over and over he did. I always do the things that I hear the Father say and the Father do. So when it says God sent forth his Son, it means Jesus took a position of submission and humility. Always equal There wasn't the need for that submission in eternity because always equal. But now there is. Now there is when he comes down to earth. There is this need and he took this position. Let me just say it again. He's not less than the father. He's not inferior. He just took that role. And so submission is part of the incarnation. Listen to Philippians 2, 6, and 7. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but emptied himself. And that's not the greatest translation. Literally, it means he laid aside the privilege to and the prerogative to always uh, demonstrate deity. He set that to the side. Taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. When did Jesus start to do this? When he took on flesh. And as a baby, it's amazing to think to ourselves, he had omniscience and omnipotence even right there as a baby. It's incredible. Think about that. I think it's that that's I think it's what's precious about that song, Mary Did You Know? You know, and she's looking into the eyes, I mean, of one who really is the sovereign one who made her. And Jesus took on flesh. It was something he had to accept to do. See, and he and he did it willingly out of love, love for the father, love for us. Now, did Jesus stop being God when he accepted this role and took on flesh? Hebrews 1, 3 tells us no. He still was the exact representation of the nature of God. Jesus is eternally all of that. You say, can you prove that there was an arrangement like this and an acceptance like this? Yes. Second Samuel 7 verse 14, which was quoted in Hebrews 1 5, where it says, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. In other words, at that time, I will be a father to him. He'll be a son to me. At that time, Jesus became a son at the incarnation. You have to get that right, otherwise, you get really strange theology. He accepted that role, and it, it happened. John 1 14, when the Word became flesh, and that's when John 1 18. Uh, it could be said of Jesus that he is the only begotten of God. Psalm 2, verse 7, He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And the today there was a prophecy of that day. I'm talking about something that would take place in the future. So it means submission. It also means Deity. His acceptance also means deity, a demonstration of deity. Listen, God sent forth, it says, the Son. Where did he send him forth from? Heaven. No one has an existence before coming to this earth. You maybe hear that from certain maybe um, religions that tell you that. That it, that is, that, that's, the idea of a person, a human existing before being born is not true. No matter how many religions come around teaching the pre-existence of people as souls waiting for bodies. It's, it's not what the Bible teaches. But for Jesus, as the second member of the Trinity, it was true. Only one. Like Jesus told, remember when Jesus told this to the Jews in John 8, before Abraham was born, what? I am. And what I am means is I've always existed. 
always existed. Listen, Isaiah forty-eight sixteen. This is gonna, this should blow your mind here. This is. You ever have someone say, "Well, can you prove the Trinity from the Old Testament?" The answer to that is yes. And when you say yes, you should take him to Isaiah forty-eight verse sixteen. Listen to this, verse twelve. Verse 12, well, it's clearly the Lord speaking because verse 9, my name, my praise. Verse 11, my own sake, my glory. Verse 12, Israel, whom I called, I am he, I am the first, I am the last. So this is God talking here, right? Verse 16, come near to me. Listen to this. From the first, I have not spoken in secret. From the first time it took place, I was there. And now... The Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Lord God, me, his spirit. Three, spoken distinctly as persons. And yet, the heart of Theology all throughout the Old Testament is Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Isaiah 48.16.3. Deuteronomy 6.4. One. What's the answer? Yes. The answer is yes. Three in person. One in essence. Now listen to this. There's three here. And they're one, right? So, first, submission or humility. His acceptance meant that. Second, it meant a demonstration of deity. Thirdly, it shows unique distinction. Unique distinction. What do you you mean by that? There's not another one like this. There's not another one like this. Galatians 4.4. God sent forth his son. That's deity. Born of a woman, there's humanity. So, let's work it through. Is Jesus God? Yes. Is Jesus a man? Yes. Does that mean that Jesus has two natures? Yes. Do we have two natures? No. See the the distinction? He's the only one, fully God, fully man, say it in a different way, perfectly in one body, two natures, existing without rival, existing without mixture, existing without modes, without violence to the oneness of God in essence. And that theological word, as I told you before, is hypostatic union. And that just means the union of two things that shouldn't be together but are. Jesus submitted his human nature to do exactly what the Father wanted done. Perfect submission. Always yes to the Father. Always yes to the Father. That's what we mean when we say incarnation. Infleshed. Infleshed. That's what incarnation means. Now we have to ask why. Why is this such a big deal? I could say a lot, but let's just put this together for this morning in this way. It had to be this way so that we could receive salvation. Salvation couldn't come, couldn't come any other way. 
And it was at the fullness of time that this took place, this joining together for Jesus as fully God and fully sinless man. Let me give you a third point. Let's see a third point here. Number three, Jesus' coming was accomplished. It was accomplished. Jesus came with purpose. He came on time because of purpose. Why? To accomplish something. Look at verse 4. Born under the law. Here's the purpose statement. So that he might redeem those who were under the law. Now what does it mean to be born under the law? Why is it significant for Jesus to be born under the law? How does his birth connect to being under the law? I'll tell you. It means that Jesus was born like any other man. Now we need, we always, we, we make a big deal about, uh, his birth, and we, you know, that little song, No Crying He Makes. We have no idea about that. The Bible doesn't say, Well, he didn't cry. I think we sometimes think that because you think, Well, babies cry because they're angry or something. I don't know. I mean, or they want to eat, or I don't know. I mean, something, but his parents, you just can't figure it out, right? You say, Why? Did you feed them? Yeah. Still crying. You know, well, maybe they need more sleep. I don't know. They slept, just got done sleeping 12 hours. Uh, maybe they need a diaper change. Well, they've changed a the diaper. Still crying. Well, we got to figure this out. Maybe they just want to cry. I don't know. Maybe they're communicating with us in some way. Maybe they're not happy. Hey, I got you guys as parents, right? All right. We got to figure this out. We'll have years to figure this out, kid, right? So, kind of thinking he cried. Maybe he came in sad because of this humanity. I don't know. We know he wept later. John 11. Jesus wept, it says. Why is it significant for Jesus to be born under the law? Every single person is born with an obligation to the law. And you know, the law has no feelings, by the way. The law has no mercy, no compassion, no understanding. It's just the law, right? You get pulled over, you're going 65. It was, speed limit was what, you know, 30 or whatever. And you say, well, I was in a hurry, right? So, okay, well, all right, uh, you still get a ticket. Well, but let me tell you why. I mean, this is a really good one, right? And you're thinking of it and all that. And you just say, well, yeah, but... You see, this is what the law says, and this is what you did, and so, you know, here's when you need to appear in court, you know, whatever. I mean, there's no compassion, no understanding. It's just the law. Now, whose law are we talking about here? Well, James 4 tells us there is only one lawgiver. Did you know that? There's only one lawgiver. Romans 2 says every person is born with a conscience that is bound to an internal law. And and that's why, by the way, the Ten Commandments appeals to our conscience. That's what the Ten Commandments appeals to, is our conscience. Everyone knows deep down inside that it is wrong, for example, to take another person's stuff. Something deep, something inside of you says, ah, yeah, I probably shouldn't do that. That it is wrong to take another person's 
life. That it is wrong to lie, to cheat, to get angry at another person, to treat another person without decency. There's an alarm sensor in all of us that goes off when we know that we have stepped out of bounds when it comes to the happiness of another, the right of another to live peaceably. We know that. Now, the privilege for the Israelites, by the way, is that they were given God's law in written form. And so there was no guesswork for them. Why were they given the law? To know him and to live for him by it. But the problem is that lawbreakers are condemned. I'm taking you, I think, to the heart of Christmas. This might not feel like it yet. Uh, We're going to get there. Lawbreakers will be prosecuted and then punished by God if found guilty. And it's just, again, the law is unbending. James 2 verse 10 tells us that it only takes one transgression to be guilty of all of the law. And so to be under it is to be under the accountability of it. Do you understand that? That's what it means when it says to be under law. The obligation to follow it perfectly. That's God's standard. And what that means is that Jesus was born under every single requirement to follow the law, to carry it out to the fullest degree. It's just a statement that he was a true human. He was under the same stuff as us. No different. He was born so that he could be subject to all the commandments of God. Listen to Matthew 5.17. This is Jesus talking. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. Jesus says, when I was born, when I came to this earth, I didn't come to get rid of the law or prophets. I didn't come to write my own. I came to fulfill it. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. What does that mean to fulfill? It means to carry the law out to its perfect, fullest, intended meaning. And where the Pharisees interpreted the law to mean one thing, Jesus never followed their interpretation. He followed God's intended meaning of the law. Let me see if I can explain. That's why when Jesus says stuff like he says in Matthew 5, remember in Matthew 5 he says, you've heard it said, Do not murder, but I say to you, do not be angry with your brother or sister. And to do that is to murder him or her. Say, wait a minute, but it says do not murder. Jesus says, I'm here to help you understand the meaning of what do not murder means. In other words, God wasn't just concerned about the outside, get get the outside right. He wanted the heart. He wanted you to obey, do not murder from the heart. Do not commit adultery, but I say to you, do not have lust in your heart after another person sexually. Same thing. 
That's the actual meaning of do not commit adultery. Listen to Matthew 5.18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished, until I've done it all, until I've obeyed every single part of it, including the intent, the actual meaning of it, the, the spirit of it. Now, I'm going to help you see again. You say, are you getting the Christmas? I'm getting the Christmas. In being subject to all those commandments, he made himself the target of temptation. And that's also part of becoming a man and taking on true humanity too, right? Every one of us deals with temptation. I'll tell you this, but it was actually important that Jesus be tempted for two reasons. You say, why? For two reasons. One, to identify with us so that he can sympathize with us, okay? That's one reason. It was very important that Jesus be the target of temptation. Hebrews 2, 17 and 4, Hebrews 4, 15 say that Jesus had to be made like his brethren in all things. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Listen, his temptations were real suffering. But make no mistake, Jesus can sympathize with our weakness. He was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And so the first thing he is, he is that he can identify with us because he faced everything we have faced but has won. And that is good news. He won every battle against every temptation, every single one. You, you can say that he did that for us. Second reason, though, why it was important for Jesus to be tempted is so that he, can earn, he could earn our salvation. Oh, now we're getting closer. Did you catch that? Jesus faced temptation to perfectly win every battle so that he could earn our salvation. You can't earn your own salvation. There, you, you don't, there's not enough merit. You don't have enough merit and you have too much guilt. Okay. You can't earn your salvation for those two reasons. You don't have enough merit and you have too much guilt. Born under the law was to redeem those under the law so that every act of obedience by Jesus earned our righteousness, a righteousness that you and I fail at miserably every day. That's how his righteousness could be imputed to us at salvation. Second Corinthians 5.21 and Philippians 3.9, because he put himself under that law. That is, under the law's demands. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That we might become the righteousness of God. And what that means is by means of imputation. Philippians 3.9 says, And may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which, which comes from God on the basis of faith. That verse tells us 
It's not our own righteousness. It's somebody else's. Who's Jesus's? A righteousness that is the very righteousness that Jesus Christ earned for us so that he could impute it to us when we trusted in him alone for salvation. But that's not all. Galatians 4, 5. So that he might redeem those who were under the law. Do you see it now? That means we who were also born under the law, born under the obligations of the law. Galatians 3.10, for as many as are of the works of the law are, are under a curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Is there anything in the book of the law that you have not obeyed? If the answer, and the answer is yes, by the way, then you're cursed. You and I are cursed. And that's, you know, the song, Far as the curse is found. That's what it means. We're obligated. Under the law, we're obligated to the law. You say, but I didn't agree with it. I had no say in it. Well, let me ask you a few questions. You're breathing his air, aren't you? You kind of like that, don't you? You're enjoying the flow of blood from every heartbeat pulsing through your unobstructed veins, right? Listen, this is his earth. Your life is his life. He made you. He, He has the right to obligate you to follow his law. Galatians 4, 5 says, Jesus was born under the law so that he might redeem those born under the law. What does redeem mean? It means to purchase back, to, to, to buy back. When Jesus went to the cross, accepted the punishment from the Father by burying all our sins, it was him going into the slave market of sinners and buying back some of them to himself. He went into the slave, into the market where enslaved sinners were. All sorts of slavery. Some enslaved by addictions and others by alcohol. Some by sexual sin. Some, still others were enslaved by coveting and others enslaved by selfishness. And still others enslaved by rebellion. And still others enslaved by pride. And others enslaved by all their belittling of God. And still others enslaved by all the garbage that comes out of their mouth. Lies, deceit, swearing, cursing, all the anger, all the lust, all the violence, all the self-worship. Hey, pick your enslavement, right? There might be a few of those that, that, that describe you. Me too. But he came. He was born to set them free. That sinners might belong to him. Right out of that marketplace. Of sin. The sin marketplace. You say, well, that's... Just changing masters still makes you a slave. True. But you know, I mean, you'll always be a slave, but the question then is, who is your master? Romans 6, either sin or Jesus. 
Sin is a cruel, harsh master. Jesus is a kind, gracious, merciful, forgiving, powerful, sovereign master. You pick. There are only two kinds, and sin is is really connected to the devil himself. And what Jesus accomplished them was redemption, that is, the purchasing of slave sinners to himself to release them from that kind of slavery. The ones Jesus redeemed were the ones the Father gave to him from before the foundation of the world. John 6 says, notice that can, that, that text in John 6 verses 37 to 39 connects why Jesus came into the world. That is, why he was born to deliver all the ones the Father had given the Son. When did the Father do that? In the, in the eternal past. So, Jesus' coming was arranged by proclamation before times eternal, by prophecy. Old Testament prophets said he was going to come by, by providence. All the stuff that people were doing culturally, politically, were all just God using the shape of time, fullness of time. Jesus' coming was accepted. The second member of the Trinity agreed. God sent forth his son, Jesus. Jesus' coming was accomplished. Jesus was born under the law to redeem those under the law. He was under the law, sinless. We were under the law as breakers, guilty. And so you have this last one. Number four, Jesus' coming was applied. Galatians 4, 5, that we might receive the adoption as sons. When a person becomes a Christian, he immediately receives adoption as a son. He immediate, she immediately receives adoption as a daughter. Say, so what does that mean? Well, adoption was a real thing back then, and it worked in a lot of ways. It could be that you, you know, you took the slave that you bought and you adopted them as your child. It could be that you absorbed a child because the parents died. When a Roman adopted a child, in the legal sense, that child was given the legal right to inheritance just as much as the biological child. Did you know that? Now what this verse is saying is that when Jesus redeemed us, he adopted us. What's that mean? Listen to John MacArthur on this. Adoption is the act of bringing someone who is the offspring of another into one's own family. What's that saying? That you and I were born into another family. What family? Look this up yourself. 1 John 3, 9 and 10 tells us, All people were born into the family of the devil. That's what happened when Adam sinned. Genesis said, we're now the offspring of him. You can tell as we do things just like he does. Lie and cheat and steal and lust and all that stuff. That's just the devil. We listen to his message all the time. 
First John and John 3 tells us we must be born again. And that's the reason why. Because we have to have second birth. First birth is just born of, you know, 1 John 3.10. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. In other words, we are born as the children of the devil. When Jesus redeems us, we become the child of God. You can't say all people are children of God. It's not true, actually. So when Jesus redeems you, he takes you as the offspring of another and brings you into his own family. And you know what he does next? He adopts you. This means the only way a person who can become God's child is by spiritual regeneration that causes God to adopt that person into his family. Justification is the natural declaration of God that because regeneration and adoption took place, he can now declare that person righteous in his sight. You're not actually righteous. You're declared that because of what Jesus did for you. Now, all this can be described by one amazing word that fits Christmas, and it is the word gift. So look there in your notes as we close this thing here. Gift. What's this mean for us this Christmas? A person can receive this gift by faith. But look at this. You need to receive the gift this Christmas. What is that? Four things here. Look at it. Gift. And they all start with those letters. Gift. First one, glory. If the coming of Jesus was arranged, it means that this is a sovereign plan for God's sovereign glory. What's your position then on God's glory? Are you a rival competitor? Or a reflecting convert? A rival competitor lives for his own glory. A reflecting convert is like a bike reflector. You ever have those, your kid? Bike reflectors have that. You know what a bike reflector does? A bike reflector has no power. All it can do is soak up the sun and reflect back what comes in. God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem us, that we might become reflecting converts of his glory. So, G, glory. I, invitation. The second member of the Trinity accepted the role as our redeemer to be born of a woman under the law. It was humility. It was surrender. He laid aside the privileges of his glory to take on humble humanity, to live lower, to die as the just for the unjust. The second member received the invitation to be our Savior. Let me ask you this question. Have you received the invitation to come to him for salvation? Here's the question then. Are you a stubborn rebel? Or a surrendered receiver? Finished. F, finished. Jesus was born to accomplish something, right? What did he he accomplish? 
He accomplished our righteousness, our, our redemption. So, we ask these questions. Are you a resume builder? Or a redeemed believer? You know, resume builders, they're just trying to trying to build their resume for their life so that they can be impressive to either people or maybe someday you face God and say, well, look, I, I tried my best. Look, at, I did this. I did this. It wasn't, wasn't perfect, but, you know, I did this. That's a resume builder. But you're not going to make it because your resume has to say righteousness on it. And if it doesn't say that, then you're rejected. You need to be a redeemed believer. How do we know if I'm a redeemed believer? T, transformation. Jesus was born to have his life and death applied to sinners. When that happens, a child of the devil becomes a part of the family of God, an adopted son, an adopted daughter, into God's family through Christ. Listen, salvation is transformation. So we ask this question. Are you a familiar stranger or a family member? A family member is a following son. One who follows Jesus for life. Have you become a family member? What's a family member? It's one who lives like the family. One who talks like the family. One who is loyal to the family. One who is part of the family because Jesus Christ brought you into the family and made you family. How did he do that? He bought you. He paid your price to get you out of the slave market. He made you new. He made you family by his blood, for his glory. He gave you faith so you could believe in him. A true family member is one who follows Christ for life. Is that you? Hey, good news. If your answer is, I don't know, or I'm not sure, or even no, today could be a really awesome day, and tomorrow an even better one because it's Christmas. This is why he was born, born for this. And we sing about it, and we talk about it, and we gather every Lord's Day because of that. Celebrate that. So, Christmas was on time to be able to accomplish all of that. We praise the Lord for that, don't we? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for giving us your word, and um, all of it is true, and we want to receive it into our hearts all the time. We thank you, dear Lord, that Jesus Christ came in, um, in this way, that the coming of Christ was arranged, and accepted and accomplished that it accomplished this purpose and and uh, and that when we believe in you you apply it to us in a special way where you make us family father th- those are things that we can't do for ourselves neither would we be interested in unless you had done amazing work through the cross to apply all of this to us help us lord to just give you the praise and the glory for all of this May this Christmas be special because of it. In Jesus' name we pray.